situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome, everyone, to The Truth Perspective. It is March 7th. Today in the studio, we have Elon Martin. Even there. I'm Harrison Cayley. And today, we are very pleased to have Dr. Tom Stevenson with us. Tom is the author of a new book that came out uh, in last November, I believe, called Julius Caesar and the Transformation of the Roman Republic, published by Rutledge. Tom received his PhD from the University of Sydney and is currently a senior lecturer in classics and ancient history at the University of Queensland, Australia. His, uh, his research focus is on politics and ideology um, in the late Roman Republic and early Empire, the careers of Cicero and Caesar, and he's currently working on a book on the history and significance of the Roman emperor as Pater Patriae, Patriae father of the fatherland. So we're very excited to have this talk today. Uh, Tom, thanks for agreeing to be on the show, and welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me, Harrison. All right. Before we get started, I want to read two things uh, that have some re- relevance, I think, to your book. Now, these are both some short excerpts from some ancient authors. So this first one is a short excerpt from Suetonius. Some think that habit has given him lo- a love of power and that weighing the strength of his adversaries against his own, he grasped the opportunity of usurping the, the, despotism, sorry, the despotism which had been his heart's desire from early youth. That's Suetonius. This is Plutarch. At all events, the man who was thought to have been the first to see beneath the surface of Caesar's public policy and to fear it, as one might fear the smiling surface of the sea, and who comprehended the powerful character hidden beneath his kindly and cheerful exterior, namely Cicero, said that in most of Caesar's political plans and projects, he saw a tyrannical purpose. In Spain, when Caesar was at leisure and reading from the history of Alexander, he was lost in thought for a long time and then burst into tears. His friends were astonished and asked the reason for his tears. Do you not think, said he, it is a matter for sorrow that while Alexander, at my age, was already king of so many peoples, I have yet to achieve no brilliant success. So an image of Julius Caesar from two ancient authors. Now, that kind of, those two quotes, and I'm sure there are more, kind of give in a nutshell what has been, I think, the the kind of standard view of Caesar, that he was a tyrant and he sought um, despotic control from a very young age, and then everything, every decision he made in his life was to come to that conclusion. But we'll get into that. First, I want to ask, um, I, I know on my bookshelf, I've got a stack of Caesar books. So, and every year it's Caesar, a new one coming out. So why another Caesar book? Um, t- Tom, why did you decide to write this one? Um, I guess there are two reasons. Uh, one is that his importance has diminished. Uh, the reason that there are so many books is because he's still being used as a model. His uh, life and the consequences of his life are um, still with us. 
he's one of the great models for political leaders, for instance, one of the great models for military leaders. His, um, his commentaries on the, the war in Gaul and the civil war are still used in uh, military colleges around the world. And uh, if, if you think of it, um, other, uh, other significance, I mean, it's less than a century since we had uh, czars in Russia and kaisers in Germany, mm-hmm. and these are uh, inheritances of, of Caesar's name. Uh, you, you could even think of all people who were named Julius or, or Julia or Julie or um, Cesario or De Cesare or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's, and think of our calendar, think of the month of July, uh, and, and I could go on. You could think about all the movies, all the uh, the stage plays. All HBO. Of the, uh, exactly, yes. Uh, so very popular, so very recently. So th- those sorts of things are just uh, an, a superficial indication of exactly how um, prominent he still is. Um, it's also a case on, a, on another level that uh, because of that prominence, he's taught very heavily in uh, universities and schools around the world. Uh, and then, and you mentioned HBO there. Uh, the HBO series, for instance, gave a, a great impetus to Caesar scholarship and Caesar interest. Mm-hmm. And so, naturally, books come out in the in the wake of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, a course on Caesar here at the University of Queensland, and as it happens, the the course is 12 weeks long, and my book has 12 chapters. And so, <laughs> you can put two together. Uh, it works. You know, one one produces the other, and. Uh, you know, fingers crossed the students. They, I mean, Caesar's career still seems to resonate with them. But they have ideas that are kind of unformed about Caesar before coming to read about him. Uh, he's so much a part of popular culture. They they know about Caesar. They're attracted by the name. They they know that Roman emperors were all Caesar in the wake of uh, Caesar's lifetime. Uh, there's already that kind of intrinsic interest that's there. And then they come and do the course and, well, you know, they get a deeper appreciation, I hope, anyway. So um, basic cultural, political interest that's uh, undiminished over the years and uh, also the, uh, you know, the idea of wanting to write a particular kind of uh, textbook for the courses that are uh, taught around universities around the world. And and for general readers, too, it's it's got a... The book has a... um, a set of broad aims as far as readership goes. It would be very nice if undergraduates found it useful. It would also be very nice if um, if the educated general reader that the publishers talk about, if, if that person thought that this was an accessible book and had some ideas that could stimulate them and maybe make them go and read. Well, I think uh, it is. More about. And I just I just want to say that I, that I personally found it to be, um, well, a challenging but a, an easy read. Um, you've got a very... Uh, flowing style. It's it all makes sense. You explain everything very clearly. You give all the context necessary for I think a, a relatively aware or educated reader to just get right into it, even without a lot of background knowledge. So I think that uh, I think it's great for the you know the so-called average reader and not just um, not just academics or undergrads or or something like that. So I think you did a good job. Oh, thank you very much. I'd, I'd love that to be the case. It'd be great if. Uh if it was thought to be accessible and people could get into it. It is. And one of the, or a couple of the things that I personally found um, attractive about the book is, first of all, because there are a lot of Caesar biographies out there. Um, like, I think I counted, well, at least, I've got, I've got a list of Caesar books that's about 50 long from, like, the past 
century, and that's just probably the major ones. And but this, the your book, it's not super long for one, but it covers Caesar's entire life. So you could view it as kind of a biography where you get all the big uh, details of the life and times of Julius Caesar. But at the same time, you've got a specific focus, and that kind of guides each of the chapters, and that is looking at Caesar's career and life from a particular angle, and that is relating back to the, the quotes from Plutarch and Suetonius that I read out at the beginning of the show, did Caesar kind of aspire for, basically aspire to be king of Rome and to become dictator for life and that sort of thing. So, and and at the same time, so that, that's, that allows you to look at all the evidence and kind of, uh, it's a really balanced look at the, the two sides, sometimes more than the two sides of the the reactions to and the opinions of what Caesar did and how and how he did it. So we're going to get into some of those details. Um, but first, um, because in order to understand what was happening and and the, the decisions that Caesar made and that everyone else made that led to these kind of great events in history, like the the wars in Gaul or the civil wars, um, what we what was Rome like? Like um, what was it like to live in Rome? What was it like for a politician or just the average citizen or pleb or a person living in the province? Could you provinces? Could you give a little background on just what life was like in Rome? Oh, that's a it's a great question, and uh, one of the reasons I think it's great is because it's uh, immensely controversial. Um, if we think of the 100 BC when Caesar is born, uh, Rome is a massive city. It um, it it either is or will become uh, the first minion city in Western history. So, it, it, in uh, in Caesar's lifetime, so it, it's an incredibly large city for the ancient world, and uh, scholarship has uh, struggled to understand the pressures of this age. In the book, I try to say that there's a traditional body of scholarship that has painted uh, endless problems, endless socio-economic problems, problems in the countryside problems with violent mobs in the city, political processes breaking down, uh, the murder of politicians, political murder had come to Rome with the assassination of Tiberius Gracchus in, uh, in 133 BC, the famous Tribune. And, and so traditional scholarship then uh, paints a picture of endless problems uh, so that people had become so fed up that they were looking for figures like Pompey or Caesar to... Um, lead them against the corrupt uh, aristocratic government, get rid of that government and establish some kind of popular uh, government that would at least give them a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the traditional scholarship and it has some bases in the ancient sources. But uh, there are a number of writers now who are uh, beginning to say, was it exactly that bad? Uh, and, and even if it was that bad, what does that mean? Uh, so instead of talking about a picture of very rapid and very dramatic and very horrific change, so that uh, many, many disaffected people want to follow a Caesar or a Pompey, and, and they, they don't mind fighting for them to the death because, after all, what have they, what have they got to live for if it's uh, so bad? Um, scholars now are asking, what about continuity? How did things rumble on? Uh, how did the government rumble on? And if things did rumble on, uh, does that imply that we've we've overdrawn this picture of uh, of mass 
of change and great dislocation and uh, trauma and political murder and, and so on and so forth. And it may well be that that's uh, the case. Uh, it's, it's difficult to decide definitively exactly uh, what was going on. We can certainly say that Rome is an imperial power in 100 BC. I, I think the salient point to think about uh, the Romans at this time is that they were an imperial people and they were very highly conscious of it. Uh, their world is massively hierarchical and uh, they see themselves at the top of uh, the hierarchy. Um, it's, it's a very individualistic world so that uh, men in particular fight one another for uh, public standing and social standing in a way that I, I think or I hope we would find quite extraordinary today. I, I think we're I think we, we value egalitarianism and uh, well, so ideas like humility and so on a fair bit more than, than they did. Uh, one of the things I tell my students about Roman nobles, or in fact about Roman society in general, is that if you were in a Roman room, people could uh, pretty largely number one another, from one down to however many were in the room. Um, they had structures in place, and the senators are classic, uh, drawing up the Senate role, it's basically the list of the top uh, 300 people in, in Roman society, uh, and their names would appear on the list in terms of their their order. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing. And, and if you were to ask me, as my students say, well, exactly how important is it to be uh, number 43, for instance, as against number 10 or 9 or whatever, well, I, I would say to them that uh, the, the concept, the, the idea of your ranking is so uh, important that you would cross the Rubicon to support it yes. uh, because dignitas is uh, so fundamental to understanding why the civil war broke out between uh, Pompey and Caesar. It's a world where, uh, as I say, men in particular, if I think of somebody like Caesar uh, being born into a patrician family, not a recently prominent patrician family, but uh, a patrician family, and having all the pressures of having to forge a public career uh, without without the backing that he might have expected if his family had been more recently prominent, uh, but being pushed. And, and you're not just pushed to succeed in your own generation. You're meant to top all the members of your family who have gone before. So they don't just drive you to be number one in your world, but to be number one ever. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing. You mentioned Alexander the Great there. Mm -hmm. To measure yourself against Alexander the Great, you hardly give yourself much <laughs> much opportunity for uh, you know, coming up short. Uh, and that's what these guys did again and again and again. You see Roman nobles um, behaving in ways that I hope politicians today would, would pull back from or military leaders today would pull back from, uh, at least at least in the West anyway. Uh, the, the absolute drive for competition is uh, extraordinary at Rome, and it's uh, it's you know got a lot to do with these Roman nobles, the way that they're socialised, the way their families want them to succeed, the way their clients expect them to succeed, and the way them, they themselves feel pressure to be not just the best in their lifetime, but to be the best ever. Uh, it's a completely and utterly extraordinary thing. But when they write about their uh, their careers, for instance, it is said that they'll make claims, for instance, to have been the uh, uh, the most handsome or the greatest conqueror or uh, the most virtuous man who has ever lived, who has ever lived. 
Um, it's just it's extraordinary the sorts of things they say. It, it makes the uh, forging of the Roman Empire that much more um, explicable if you think that these guys were being driven by a social system that was uh, way more intense in many ways than anything I've uh, experienced mm-hmm. for sure, and that uh, you know the majority of us would have experienced uh, in our in our lifetime. You asked me, you know, a bit, bit uh, to set the scene a little bit. I, I really should probably say that uh, we're in 100 BC, so the year that Caesar was born, and during the second century BC, um, maybe I should say just to set the scene uh, that there'd been some problems with the Roman military. They had defeated Hannibal at the end of the third century BC. Uh, the Romans had conquered Spain. They had conquered uh, Greece and uh, parts of the um, eastern Mediterranean. So they were a big empire, and parts of Africa as well, through the 2nd century BC. But then they got bogged down very badly in Spain. And uh, towards the end of the 2nd century BC, so not many years at all before uh, Caesar's uh, birth, the Romans were struggling terribly against the Germans. Uh, the, the invasion of the Cambrian and the Teutonians was was turned back with very, very great difficulty and uh, only really because of the uh, extreme brilliance of the, the general Marius um, and as a result of the way that he led his men and drilled them and, and forced them to something uh, better than perhaps they would have been without him. Uh, so the military had been struggling and a series of reforms had taken place they're not all to be um, credited to Marius, although this this is a traditional view. We often talk about the Marian reforms and uh, the Marian Roman army, but there had been reforms throughout the second century BC. Um, the Romans did eventually defeat the the Germans. They were an imperial people. Uh, in spite of these military problems, they they did come out on top. And the army that they produced after all that struggle was the army that Caesar would wield. Um, and I'd just better say something about the land too, especially land in Italy. There was a, um, a, a view among scholars of a couple of generations ago that uh, when soldiers went away to fight overseas, and they were increasingly doing so as Rome expanded her empire, um, when they did this in the second century BC, there was a thought that small farms in Italy were falling fallow because the men were not there to work them anymore. And when that happened, big landowners who were increasingly becoming rich as a result of the profits of the empire, these rich landowners supposedly bought up these small lots or pushed the uh, the families off them and, and created massive estates, latifundia uh, as they're called, the wide lands. Um, the people then from the countryside had nowhere to go. They supposedly drifted to the cities. They struggled to find a job there. They would join. Uh, they would join the forces of clients who were backing politicians. They would get involved in violence, and they'd get handouts. Uh, it was the beginning of bread and circuses, and, and and so we had political violence in in Caesar's time. And that that picture of dislocation in the countryside and drifting to the cities, and the development of political uh, violence, and and the the idea of having all these disenfranchised people, these people who felt um, weak and angry because they'd lost everything they they held dear and had come to the city and were looking for a Caesar or a Pompey or whoever. But that now that 
picture now is being questioned. Um, there's some great scholarship which is looking at uh, land patterns in Italy in the uh, second, first centuries BC, and uh, is saying, well, look, you know, uh, there were soldiers who were going overseas, but um, it looks as though traditional scholars have forgotten about their their brothers. And more than that, it looks as though they've forgotten in particular about the, the women of the family. Um, they, they just assumed, it seems, that uh, the women weren't able to contribute to the running of the farm. And nothing could be further from the truth, it seems, uh, that the women were extremely capable. So this picture of uh, you know, farms falling fallow and being taken over, it, it's just not quite right. And the importance of that is this. Um, I, I guess... Uh, I guess you would know that the Roman army had a property qualification at this time, um, which meant that if you were to fight as a legionary, you had to have a stake in a state. You had to own a certain amount of land. And uh, if you owned that amount of land, you had to stake in the state. That was your eligibility to be enlisted as a legionary. Now, if these men are not losing their uh, property, they're not enlisting to the city. Um, where they're not eligible for the legions because supposedly they've got no land, if that's not the case, and we do have uh, small landholders in big numbers in Italy, then uh, the, the picture of massive difficulty, the picture of Caesar just coming along and lighting a match to a uh, you know a situation that was immensely flammable, that that begins to crumble. And the beauty of that sort of idea is that we now have to think that Caesar was uh, more influential with people. He was more charismatic. That he, uh, that the civil war was not inevitable. That they, uh, that there were other processes. That people were making decisions about uh, government that were not just because they were completely desperate or with with no hope, um, and so on. I, I don't know if I'm doing it very well, but the the what happened in scholarship in Roman history in the uh, in terms of late republic in the last uh, generation or so. It, it's been uh, wonderful to have the old traditional perspectives questioned so heavily and even overturned um, very dramatically. I'm really quite influenced by uh, the new scholarship that's coming along and questioning the old picture of dislocation and problem and, and so on. I'm not saying there were no problems, but not in the same way. And they require a Caesar or a Pompey or a Sulla or a, a Marius who are more substantial figures. They're not just leaders uh, that people will follow because they have no one else and nothing else um, to, you know, to live for, basically. It's a, it's a much more dramatic picture that's being arrived at in uh, Roman scholarship at the moment. Um, hey, Tom. So um, the, the one of the underlying threads that uh, I've, uh, I'm still getting appreciation for uh, is just how much of an overlap there is um, between the political leadership um, and moral leadership of Rome and the um, imperial aspirations of individuals and their ability to lead campaigns. Uh, you just spoke of um, the people needing a, uh, a Sulla or a, um, or a Marius or a Caesar or a Pompeii. Um, can you speak a little bit about the culture of, of imperial um, designs in Rome at the time? And, um, was 
Was it just the period that they were living with where it was uh, eat or be eaten? Um, or, or was there a, a, a drive in Rome that was that, that surpassed uh, the surrounding nations and peoples that kind of thrust them forward in, the, in that direction? Right. Um, when I think of the Roman drive to expand, uh, I think of a couple of things. One is that it was not atypical or extraordinary. Uh, and what I mean by that is that there were a lot of aggressive peoples and, and a lot of aggressive um, governments in the ancient world. So that conflict was endemic and we really should think that the Romans are not the only uh, aggressive expansionist state if uh, if they get the opportunity. In fact, far from it. And the, the pattern seems to be the other way, so that we should uh, take aggression and uh, uh, imperial uh, empire building as, as uh, something that people would like to be involved in if only they could. What distinguishes the Romans for me, um, as I was trying to say, is this incredible social system where the men in particular are uh, socialised not just to be the best of their generation, but to be the best ever. And then I think somebody like Caesar grew up thinking he was better. Um, this is an extraordinary thing. They, this is a world in which some people are born better than others. Uh, how do you know they're born better? Well, their names are better. Their ancestors are better. Those ancestors have performed uh, deeds on behalf of the state. Uh, so the state owes them. They look better, and all these things become uh, reinforcing because uh, um, you know you get all this positive reinforcement, and the uh, you know the individual concerned really begins to be socialised into believing uh, all this sort of stuff. And if you're a member of the elite, you're educated better, you bear yourself better, you relate to other people uh, from a position of superiority, and and so on. This intense drive to be number one, this massive individualism, uh, a society of, of uh, individual competition that's beyond anything, that, with an intensity that's beyond anything that I've, I've really seen in other uh, ancient societies. The Greeks are, are massively competitive too uh, and, and quite individualistic and they have uh, leaders and models who whom the Romans themselves found impressive. Uh, Alexander the Great was mentioned before. But when I look at Roman society, this massive push uh, to be number one, this uh, energy, this drive, this uh, it, and it's a manic energy, it's a manic drive to be number one, that, that stands out to me all the time. That, uh, that along with uh, a, a lot of these advantages that are... Uh, more substantial, more socioeconomic, uh, have to do with Italy, for instance. Uh, it helps enormously that Italy has this central position in the Mediterranean. And, and I think it also helps enormously that uh, Italy has a very big population in uh, Caesar's lifetime. I, I don't I ever want to speculate about uh, population figures. All I would say on the population is that in Caesar's lifetime and in the couple of generations after, the Romans never had any trouble putting together uh, armies more massive than it had been put together before. It implies that they were, you know, there were plenty of recruits from uh, among the rural peasants and, and the other people who formed the, the Babylon of Rome's legions. It implies there were huge numbers of, of uh, those people who were willing to fight and who did fight um, in this, this terrible period of civil wars that Caesar 
uh, lived through. If I make one more point, uh, I'm a middle-aged man, and I have never, uh, I've never been in the army. Uh, I didn't even have to serve in a, a cadet corps, for instance. Uh, I haven't had military experience at all, and I find so. And I think of that as a very fortunate thing. Every other male in my family before me has had to do so um, through the World War, Second World War, and, and so on. Uh, but I haven't had to. There's a real difference between um, me being a citizen and me being a soldier. In ancient Rome, that certainly didn't apply. In so, so many ways, Rome is a military state. Uh, even when I look at the... Um, even when I look at the Roman magistracies and the Roman assemblies, uh, I see the influence of the army. And, and uh, Michael Crawford, the, uh, the English scholar, has written this famous sentence about uh, the Roman state was militarized from top to bottom. And then he goes on to describe uh, you know, some of the aspects of this militarization. Uh, so that assemblies, for instance, like the, the Comitia Centuriata, as it's called, the, the assembly by centuries, um, that's named because of the fact that it was originally the army century. And, uh, and when you look at the names of magistrates uh, and, or, and their duties, the consuls, for instance, are first and foremost the army commanders. Praetors were uh, army leaders, and, uh, and I could go on again and again and again. Uh, even political life is about whether or not you'd be a good general, because in the end, if you were to rise in the system far enough, you would control armies. Um, and, and the Romans liked to see their politicians uh, on the attack against one another, and they liked to be able to assess them and ask themselves the question, would this man be good on the battlefield? We might well need him. So the, the Roman state, uh, thoroughly militarized, and in that sense, very different to anything I've, I've known. And uh, if I just keep emphasizing the, the, the unbelievable individualism of this state, the, the drive that is in every man in particular, it's obviously a very patriarchal state, but the drive to be not just not just number one in your own uh, lifetime, but number one ever. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing. Quite, quite amazing, historically um, massively interesting to me, that, that sort of drive, that sort of intensity. Well, you mentioned women. Um, Caesar's father died when he was fairly young, and that left him in a family primarily of, of women. Could you talk a bit about the role of women, especially in Caesar's life, and what that, how that might have shaped his aspirations or the pressures on him to... Um, to advance in that social hierarchy? Well, that's a great question. I think it's one of the, the questions that uh, that more work should be done on, too. Because when I look at Caesar's early life, uh, you're absolutely right. His father dies uh, in 85 BC. So Caesar's around 14 or 15. Um, at that time, he's just about coming to the point that Romans think of as adulthood for a man. Um, when you're 15, you can begin to wear the, the toga wirilis, as it's called, the, the manly toga, and, and you're classed as a, um, as a man. Um, but Caesar's immediate uh, influences when he was 14 or 15 uh, are not male. Um, maybe I could say that Gaius Marius, the great hero, had married into Caesar's family. Uh, he married Caesar's aunt. But Marius, 
uh, died in 87 BC. Uh, Marius's money and influence, by the way, is, is very important for the Julia. They seem to have made a, um, a good political marriage. He wanted their social status as patricians. He wanted the um, standing in society that they could give him um, because he was a new man or, or outsider. He was not someone who'd ever had ancestors who'd done anything prominent at Rome before at all. He'd never had an ancestor who'd uh, been a magistrate at Rome. He had to rely on his own uh, achievements and support he got from prominent Roman nobles uh, to make his way. But that, that great hero who became such a great military leader, Marius died in 87 BC. Caesar's aunt was a widow, and then Caesar's father dies. And there are no, um, there are no uh, material male around him apart from the relatives of his mother, Aurelia. What I see again and again is a, a man with uh, a couple of sisters and a formidable mother, his mother, uh, Aurelia. Tacitus, the, the historian, says she was one of the great ladies of the Roman Republic, one of the really formidable figures. And then there's uh, Julia, Caesar's aunt, who had been the wife of Marius and who always uh, gives the impression of having been someone who had been a formidable social presence. She would have been there when uh, important people visited Marius's house, when ambassadors visited, when uh, uh, politicians visited, when important business was being discussed. We don't hear a lot about it uh, because it took place in the home. It wasn't done in public, either in the forum or in the Senate. But uh, I think these ladies saw a lot of politics uh, done in these important houses. And uh, it is an extraordinary thing that Caesar, to me, looks to be the product of a female household to a, a very significant degree, and a degree that we um, really still need to come to terms with. Um, there's, this, there's a massive problem, of course, whenever you want to talk about uh, women at Rome in particular roles. Uh, the evidence is weighted towards the elite, towards noble families, towards the, um, the top end of society. So that's one problem. And then because the society is so heavily patriarchal, uh, it's weighted away from the women. Uh, but I, I get the sense that the women of Caesar's family uh, are part of the drive for him to succeed. So they understand their world, they understand the realities of their world, they know that it's through him that the family uh, will rise or fall. And he's the, he's the only one, he's the only male. So I, I just keep getting the sense that they, they put all their hopes and their uh, support and their drives into Caesar and that they are a big part of the reason why he was um, successful. His, his mother Aurelia is mentioned at a couple of points in his career, uh, very famously when he became Pontifex Maximus in 63 BC. Uh, he'd, he'd used so much money for bribes, he'd borrowed so much money, that uh, he, he's supposed to have said to his mum as he, as he left for the election that day that he would either return as Pontifex Maximus or he wouldn't return at all um, because he was uh, so indebted he'd have to leave uh, the city. But the way I take that anecdote too is to um, just to emphasise that he was saying that to his mother, mm-hmm. um, and I, that implies to me that she was in on all the planning for how his career should go, and that she was probably a very big uh, influence. We don't hear about it because it's in the family home rather than in public, and because she's a, a woman and so on. But I, 
I get the sense again and again uh, that these ladies were extremely formidable, first of all, uh, that they had aims and ambitions for the family, they understood their society particularly well, and that they are a big part of the reason why Caesar is who he is uh, in terms of drive and political acumen and the political programs that are being worked out for him, the way to get ahead. Uh, they're all in on the planning. They know they know what to do, and they're, and they're quite clearly about it. But they were certainly praised... Uh, after their lifetime, anyway. Hmm. Well, so we can't know a lot about the, the role of women, or probably as much as we, we would like, just because they are left out of the textbooks or the, the histories and just the books that were written at the time. That brings me to another point, and that is the sources for Caesar's life himself. Um, can you talk a bit about about the sources? Because when we look at... Um, when we look at what we know or what we think we know about Caesar, the, we are looking at certain texts that were written at certain times, and that brings up all kinds of historical problems and t- problems about texts and what we can actually know about Caesar. So what, what can we actually know with like certainty, and what should we take with a grain of salt when we're reading people like Plutarch or Suetonius or even Cicero? Or even Caesar himself. Or even Caesar himself, exactly. <laughs> it's a great, great question. Um, source analysis is, uh, well, it's it's an ongoing uh, demand of uh, of Roman history, of all history, and and you've just put your finger on uh, one of the most important issues of Caesar's scholarship. We we have contemporary sources, um, so sources from his lifetime. He he, of course, is the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his commentaries, the uh, commentary on the Gallic War and the commentary on the Civil War, uh, they're presenting him in the best light possible. And, uh, well, the way they do that is still debated. Uh, quite a bit of it seems, it, it just looks superficially to be matter-of-fact reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that there are factors like selection going on and, and omission and emphasis and innuendo and so on that, that we're still getting a handle on. So we must read Caesar with, with very great uh, care. He, um, in, spite of, in spite of what we, we often think when reading, uh, what, as I say, what seems to be plain, uh, plain Latin, um, you know, very uh, matter-of-fact uh, writing with an objective air, the sense that this is tilted enormously, uh, you know, in Caesar's direction, that would be understandable, of course. The the great source for the late Republic, the, the big reason why the late Republic is uh, known better than any period in, in all Roman history, is because of the writings of Cicero would survive. So we have, uh, we have Cicero speeches and uh, rhetorical and philosophical works. We also have his letters, which are a wonderful resource, and some of them... Uh, addressed to Caesar, and uh, he, he tells us about um, his interactions with Caesar. But what we have then, uh, even from his own lifetime, are sources uh, that are about power. They're about characterizing his power. They're about either presenting it or undermining it. Mm-hmm. You and, and that sort of pattern, where you're either uh, for him or against him, or you're negotiating with him and you're easing back and forth along you know, uh, um, a sort of continuum of persuasion in, in dealing with this guy. Uh, that sort of pattern where you're either pro or con, 
or or negotiating sources who are pro or con, that that continues after his lifetime. People have to look back at Julius Caesar and make assessments, uh, and and they make assessments very largely on what he did uh, to become dictator, and then what he did as dictator. So they're looking in particular at the uh, last part of his life, the, the time of Caesar as a powerful man, and. Uh, I, I think, as I try to say in the book, that he's one of the clearest examples of writing from hindsight. Mm-hmm. Uh, his career is assessed, I beg your pardon, it's a clear example of people who are assessing his career from hindsight again and again and again. So we have uh, the poet Lucan, in, uh, who wrote under Nero. So it's about, uh, oh, about a century after uh, Caesar's death. Uh, Lucan's great poem, The Pharsalia, isn't friendly to... Uh, to Caesar, not so much to Pompey either, um, because it's horrified by civil war. And then there are the the great biographies of Suetonius and Plutarch that you've mentioned, and they're about uh, they're about 150 or so years after Caesar's death, a little bit more. Um, they're interested in well, they're biographies, but they're biographies of an ancient type. So they very heavily are interested in virtue and vice, for instance. And in um, and in human qualities, in personality qualities, biographies written by modern people are, are very often not so interested in those things as they used to be in the past, because uh, you, you always think these days anyway that that assessments of a person's goodness or badness uh, are likely to be subjective and and a matter of viewpoint and and so on. Um, but they they uh, were enormously influential. And then you, you get sources from later, uh, later centuries. Gosh, uh, you could go to uh, European literature, um, literature trying to uh, trying to inspire kings of, of later ages, medieval period, middle middle ages, and so on. Using Julius Caesar as a model, either positively or negatively, according to the, the dictates of the age. And then you finally get to, uh, for instance, the 19th century, a period of nation building. A period when uh, writers wanted strong statesmen to to stand up, to uh, give people rights, to uh, make strong nations, and and Caesar was a great figure of the 19th century in many European countries. If I just mention a German historian of the 19th century named uh, Theodor Mommsen, uh, Mommsen was a, a very very great writer. Um, he, he was a historian, as I say, but uh, he wrote the way he wrote, the way that history was thought in the, that period. Uh, the way he wrote, his work was taken as literature, and it was um, it was very influential. It was read very widely. His Roman history uh, praises Julius Caesar in a, in a quite extraordinary way. Uh, in fact, Monson thought that Caesar was the entire and perfect man. He thought he was the uh, the greatest genius that the Roman uh, world had ever produced, and, and these sorts of things, these sorts of statements, uh, the, the greatest genius, the entire and perfect man, these are these are assessments that were made just about 150 years ago, and they were made in all seriousness. It was really believed that Julius Caesar was the model for the 19th century, um, from Monson's point of view, at any rate. And, and if you, you know, if you were to ask me, well, how influential were the views of somebody like uh, Theodore Mommsen, well, 
uh, Mommsen's Roman History won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1902, so it was immensely influential. I mean, the point to make uh, in looking at these sources is that they they make judgments about Julius Caesar. They they look back on him as a figure of power, and they're very largely looking back at him uh, from hindsight, assessing someone who became the dictator at Rome, uh, and and they're very often then asking, you know, was he a good uh, ruler or a bad ruler? Was he uh, was he a positive uh, Roman magistrate or was he a tyrant? And of course, there's there are sources which write either way. Um, his his uh, supporters, people like Oppius and Balbus, well, they they obviously say the uh, the good things about Caesar, but his enemies, and there were plenty of those, and especially those who tried to justify his assassination after his death, well, they write that he was a pirate, of course, that he deserved to be killed, that he was oppressing the state, that he was uh, overturning and undermining the the traditional tenets of the Roman state, and that he was selfish and aggressive and cruel and and so on. So we get this... this, uh, um, Oscillation in the sources, back and forth between those who appreciate him, those who don't, those who want to use him as a positive model, those who don't, uh, and they're writing again and again and again from hindsight. It, it, it's something that was uh, so strong in the way that I look at Caesar's scholarship that, um, as you as you know from having read the book, I try very hard to say, well, what if we don't do that? What if we go back, for instance, to Caesar as a young man and, and try to consider what it was like for him, uh, not knowing that at the end of his life he would be the dictator at Rome, could he have possibly thought to himself that that's where he would end up, uh, given you know, a family that hadn't recently been prominent, not great um, wealth at the beginning of his life, um, father uh, dead, um, disadvantages of this kind, could he have possibly thought that that's where he'd end up? And if he was uh, in difficult straits, what exactly did he think? If he was weaker than we might think earlier in his uh, career, uh, weaker in standing, for instance, weaker in assets, uh, backing, than we might have thought, uh, what does that mean for what his aims might have been? And then then I try to put together a picture of Julius Caesar's career that's uh, less predictable, less... uh, Sure, less certain, um, where you're actually looking ahead to the next office rather than to ultimately becoming the dictator and ultimately mm-hmm. becoming the ruler of the state and a god of the state and so on. What if you can really only look forward to the next campaign for office, uh, the next step in your career, and uh, and where there's absolutely nothing certain? You, you might well lose and never ever be heard of again. Uh, what if we do that? Um, that's some of the things I, I ask in the book and try to work through with each of the chapters. What if we have a Caesar like that? And I think it's a much more interesting, well, fingers crossed, it's a, a much more interesting Caesar than um, others that I've read anyway to contemplate his career in that way. Probably a much more realistic way of looking at it too. Um, one, of the, one of the points from Caesar's early career that I wanted to ask about was, well, it's kind of a speculative question along the lines of what you were just saying is, um, because Caesar was given the position of Flamen Dialis at a certain time, is that correct? That's right. Yes, uh, priest so, of Jupiter. Yeah. So, and then that decision was overturned by Sulla, and so Caesar. Well, it's it's unsure if he ever actually um, became the Flamen Dialis, or if 
or if uh, he hadn't by the time the decision was overturned, what if what if Caesar, if that decision hadn't been overturned and he, and he had become the Flamandialis, what would have what would his life might have been like if that was the case? Uh, isn't that an extraordinary thing to happen, <laughs> uh, I mean, we we think of Caesar as the great man of action. Uh, we we look at him and and think of the great leader, the inspirational figure, the, the charismatic leader who does these amazing things in battle, in particular. Um, but if he'd become the Flamandialis. And I should just say that Flamandialis is a, um, a priesthood of very, very great sacredness. Um, we've got a Caesar who's about 15 or 16, and he's from a family. It's a patrician family, um, and it's a noble family. Uh, it's patrician, so it's descended from those very early families, the families that were prominent in very early Rome. He's noble, so he's descended from... Uh, men who have become consuls. Both these things are extremely important. Um, but but he hasn't recently. His family hasn't recently been prominent. They come to prominence again. They get support from Marius. But it's still a family that's not as prominent as uh, some other noble families of the time. The, the Metellus family, for instance, or the Catos, uh, the Scipios, and and so on. I, I could go on any any uh, number of these great Roman noble families. So they have to work out a way to get the young Caesar uh, to use his advantages as much as possible and to overcome the, the disadvantages. And it looks as though they decide on a, a religious strategy because they're patrician, because they have uh, that level of standing. Uh, he is eligible to become the Flamandialis. Now, this is an extraordinary priesthood. Um, the, the evidence that we have is that it was a priesthood of such sacredness that it was surrounded by these amazing taboos. And I guess this is what the, the point of your question really is. If you were the Flamandialis, you were not allowed, for instance, uh, not allowed to have knots on your body. So you couldn't fasten your uh, toga in the way that others could do, and you couldn't fasten your shoes in the way that others could do, because you couldn't have knots on your body. Um, you were not allowed to uh, eat beans, there were prohibitions on the amount of time you could be away from your house. Your um, your fingernail and toenail clippings had to be um, ritually dealt with, uh, ritually buried, and, and so did uh, so did your hair when they cut your hair. And the big thing, a big thing for me anyway, and an uh, important thing to contemplate for Caesar's career, is that if you became the Flamandialis, uh, it, it would be a massively sacred office and. Uh, at public, on public occasions, people would treat you with very, very great reverence. Uh, you, you could see why a family that was perhaps not of the front rank would think that this was a, um, a great coup if they could win this office. But the, the big thing for me is that if you were the Flamandialis, you, you couldn't see the army arrayed and you couldn't uh, ride a horse. Now, that would immediately have meant that the Caesar we think of with, with a, with a uh, military career uh, becoming consul, leading armies in Gaul, and so on. All of that would have been lost. It, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, he'd be a very sacred and a very prominent figure in Roman society, but he wouldn't be Caesar. Uh, it is, it, it's unbelievably extraordinary to imagine uh, that this could have happened. Mm. I think what it says, though, is that you know, we really are right to think that um, he, there were weaknesses he was dealing with, disadvantages in his family and in his uh, standing 
in his early career that would make him contemplate taking an office or, or vying for an office like the Flamen Dialis if it meant that uh, he couldn't do other things that he turned out to have a massive aptitude for uh, in his later life. It's, a, it's another indication about uh, thinking of Julius Caesar's career as not inevitable, that, he, that it was not inevitable that he would become what he became at the end of his life and that he, was, he could only have looked ahead uh, you know, to the next stage in his career and put things together and put things together and put things together and then finally have it happen the, uh, the way that it did that he reaches the dictatorship. I mean, if, if I just say one more thing about this, uh, when he was a young man, uh, Sulla was dictator, as you mentioned. Sulla, extremely frightening figure, uh, marched on Rome, uh, victor in a civil war, um, responsible for prescriptions, uh, having lists of names of people to be killed, and uh, confiscations, confiscating land, property throughout Italy for his soldiers, a real reign of terror. So there are, there are people like Sulla around, and then there are people like Pompey, uh, Pompey who becomes called Pompey the Great in emulation of Alexander the Great. How did you possibly think as a young boy that you could, uh, you could match it with them if you're conscious of your, uh, you know, some weaknesses in your family? You, you would drive, you would want to be like them, and you're subject to all the drives of, uh, of Roman manhood. But the, the likelihood that he was planning to be their match from, from very early on, it just... Uh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't convince me, as you know, from the book. And there's another Caesar, another way to look at his career, I think. So it, it looks to me like that, um, the fact that he didn't become the Flamindialis was kind of a stroke of luck for him. He might have seen it that way. And Caesar himself had particular views on fortune or luck. And so well, I wonder if you could get into two issues two topics. First of all, a bit about Roman religion and the role that religion had in the state, because we know, I know when I think about Rome, or at least when I did think about Rome, I'd think about military and politics, but religion was a big part of it too. So could you talk about that a little bit, and then how, um, how Caesar's views on, on himself, of himself and maybe religion in general, how that fit into it, and his, his view of fortune and the role that played in his life? Right, well, uh, again, uh, Roman religion is one of the growth topics of uh, uh, Roman history over the last couple of generations, and the, the reason that that's happened, and the reason that it's pertinent for Caesar, is uh, because he became Pontifex Maximus, and the Pope today is still called uh, the Pontifex Maximus, but there, there's no way that the office of Pontifex Maximus in Caesar's time was anything like the papacy. Uh, the, the Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest, the, the greatest priest at Rome, wasn't uh, the leader of the Roman state religion. Uh, he was the leader of the uh, Pontifexes, the, the Pontificates, the college of priests whose name was uh, Pontifex. And uh, it's really because of Caesar's career uh, and, and what, what he did and how he lifted the profile of that particular office and then what his, um, what his heir, Augustus, did with that office that made this this Roman priesthood um, something like as prominent as uh, as we see today with the Pope still being called the Pontifex Maximus. But um, uh, so for Caesar's career, the question's always asked: What what did religion mean to him? What did it mean to him to become the Pontifex Maximus? Why did he drive so hard uh, in 
1963 BC? Why did he bribe so many people? Why did he uh, borrow so much money? Um, why become Pontifex uh, Maximus? What did religion mean to him? Is it that he was? Uh, is it that he was just using the office as a political tool to gain prominence, to be uh, in front of people, and, uh, and and therefore to further the rest of his career? Um, or did he really have a sort of religious mindset in the sense of something that um, means a lot to him in terms of piety and emotion and psychology and so on? Well, um, my answer to that is to say that uh, traditional scholars used to assess Roman religion in terms of uh, in terms of psychology and uh, emotion and whether it was personal belief and whether it drove them uh, to think uh, the way that people, many people today might think anyway, with, with religious fervor, with, with the concept of belief being prominent, uh, with the idea that you should have emotional connections and psychological connections with, with deities beyond your being. Um, scholars assessed Roman religion in that way and they came, they sort of came up short. They said that again and again we see uh, Roman religion uh, bombing, older gods and goddesses being lost from the, the system. And then we get notes of scepticism in uh, writers like Cicero and Polybius and Dionysius Halicarnassus. Um, though the Roman nobles were just exploiting religion uh, to to keep themselves in power, and that it was the Roman people who were, in a kind of gullible way, um, following along with religion and being sort of manipulated by their betters. It's, it's sort of Marx's religion, the opiate of the masses idea. That really was the, the view of uh, Roman religion up until, well, generation or so ago in, in scholarship. I, I hope I'm sort of giving the uh, the idea about how vibrant Roman scholarship is, because in the last generation or two, I mean, in my lifetime, it's really uh, taken off with so many exciting ideas that have, you know, still a lot of relevance and significance. But when the, when the more recent scholars came along, they were very um, unhappy with this view that Roman religion was simply about psychology and emotion, and the Romans weren't very good at it, that they didn't believe in their gods, that the um, elite of the society manipulated religion, uh, and the gullible masses followed. And they began to apply techniques from disciplines like sociology and uh, uh, psychoanalysis and, uh, uh, and so on, and began to think about religion as a, as a social system. So, and, and what they would do typically was this: they would say, they would say, it didn't necessarily matter what you believed; it mattered what you did. I mean, you might say one thing in a particular context and one thing in a particular context about a particular uh, deity, but would you go along and participate in a sacrifice or in some other kind of ritual? And they were finding that again and again and again, Romans did go along and they did participate in these rituals and they did move from from uh, deity to deity, and they did participate in festivals and so on. And and so it, a, a different picture of Roman religion emerged. And it was one in which people were participating, uh, but it was better to be understood as a matter of power. So that the Romans did believe that there were gods who had an impact on your world. There were many things that they couldn't explain other than by thinking that uh, gods and goddesses were controlling things in a way they couldn't necessarily see, but they really should take account of, because if they didn't take account of it, uh, it could damage them. And this then 
as the way that religion is being understood now. Uh, not too much in terms of uh, uh, concepts like belief and psychology and emotion and so on. Uh, it, it is that. It, it must be that to some degree because we're human beings. But it's also about negotiating power with gods. And um, you know the gods are there. The Romans acknowledge them at the beginning of every public assembly. Uh, they acknowledge them at the uh, beginning of every Roman battle. Um, Caesar would have conducted rituals before speaking to his troops and before battle, uh, certainly. We, we don't hear a lot about it in the Gallic War, but uh, certainly that would have happened because it was the done thing in Rome. Uh, so we get a sense of the Roman religious world. It's much more complex and much more interesting than it was, say, a couple of generations ago when we were just using these, um, these uh, ideas of uh, psychology and emotion and so on and thinking the Romans were... Uh, manipulators and that they came up a bit short in the belief stakes and so on, it does look as though there was uh, a lot more intensity going on. Now, the, the way that that affects Caesar's theory is, well, um, it doesn't seem then as, he's, as though he's just a religious manipulator. Um, what else could he be doing with the Pontifex Maximus office um, if he's not some kind of uh, skeptic? If he's not just uh, using the office for political purposes, what, what could he be interested in? And, and there, I think it's really interesting that we're told that in very early Rome, um, the, the Pontifex Maximus um, is using, uh, using sacred objects and sacred rituals that were supposedly brought to Rome from Troy. And, and now when we begin to think this way, uh, we begin to think how it might affect the Julian family because Aeneas comes from Troy. Aeneas' son is a, a boy named uh, Eulus and the Julian family uh, relate their ancestry back to Eulus. Uh, they're, they're Julius because they're the family of, uh, of Eulus. So um, the Romans believed that the Pontifex Maximus and the Vestal Virgins who operated with him, uh, that they used sacred objects and sacred rituals which came from Troy. And the Julian family of this age could legitimately say that those objects which were being treated as state objects were in fact Julian objects. So if Julius Caesar becomes the Pontifex Maximus, he's the head of his household, but in a religious sense, he becomes the head of the Roman state as well in a way that is uh, completely different because mm. completely different to the way we thought because the sacred objects, um, they're not just a possession of the state. He could lay claim to them being a possession of his family. It's a way to assert a, a prominence in the state and a way to, in a sense, make the state part of your family. Um, it has massive implications for the way that... Uh, he might have been trying to present himself as a, a religious figure of uh, real state importance because he was a, a Julian and could use these objects that were supposedly brought by Aeneas uh, and uh, passed on to Eulus and uh, used by the Vestal Virgins and the Pontifex Maximus. Um, religion then is, oh, it's a, great, it's a great field these days. Some scholars spend their whole careers looking at uh, Roman religion. I can see... Uh, exactly why they do that, because it's endlessly fascinating um, and, and we're getting new ideas that are making us reassess people like Caesar. As fundamental as Caesar, uh, because of this wonderful religion scholarship, we're getting uh, the reason to reassess 
concern what its attitude to religion was, um, again and again and again and again and again, it makes it so much more interesting to, you know, to contemplate what the guy might have been might have been doing. Um, I wanted to shift over a little bit to the Gallic Wars. Um, um, right. So uh, massive events, hundreds of thousands of soldiers involved, uh, conflict that lasted for years, uh, dispatches from the front, um, from Caesar to Rome, uh, holidays made in his honor for his successes. Um, aside from quelling rebellion, uh, if that's a, an accurate way of describing it, uh, was Caesar trying to accomplish anything of a more uh, constructive or non-imperial um, intention? I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Sure, well, well, he would tell us that uh, he invaded Gaul because the, the Gauls were dangerous neighbors, uh, because they proved that they were dangerous in the past. They... they uh, had invaded Italy. Uh, they were threatening the Roman uh, province, the nearest Roman province in the north. And he would also say that they had um, they had slighted his family. They damaged his family in a in a previous generation when they uh, defeated a general who was related to the Caesars. Um, was he doing anything constructive? Oh, I, have, I have to tell you, when I think of the Gallic War, I think of destruction mm-hmm. rather than construction. Uh, it, all all peoples were aggressive uh, at this time, it seems, or at least there was an aggressive impulse. Uh, but but Caesar, his invasion of Gaul, in spite of what he said, and in spite of the fact that you know, the Gauls had invaded Italy in, in past uh, generations, there had always been conflict with the Gauls from the time that Rome was founded. And in spite of that background... Um, it's to Caesar's advantage to win a great military reputation. It's it's what you want to do. It's your prime job as a Roman male. Once you get to a position um, as consul that you can lead armies, then you have to try to win the great campaigns and bring back the spoils in the way that great generals of the past have done. Uh, you want to put them around your house. You want to be known as being a... a a family who has produced great generals. Um, military glory is is the greatest of the glories. It's it's uh, easily number one. So if Caesar is going to continue to rise, even if he's going to sustain himself in, in the society he's in, he has to win military glory. His his major competitors at the time, the the, the great men with military glory in in his age, um, are Pompey and Crassus. By, by the year 58 BC, when uh, Caesar invades Gaul, Pompey and Crassus are ostensibly cooperating with him. But he would look at those two men and see that Pompey had conquered on three continents. And as, as a result, he was called Pompeius Magnus. He was matched to Alexander the Great. And Crassus, who is always a more, um, much less easy-to-know figure, uh, I think partly because he wanted it that way, he uh, played his cards very close to his chess crisis. It's an extremely interesting figure. But those two men had military glory that was way in excess of his. Who could ever imagine um, matching Pompey 
conquering on three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia, um, matching Alexander the Great, who did the same thing. Who could ever imagine that? If you're going to even sustain yourself in that world, well, you need military glory, and you get it by attacking um, foreign enemies. It, it doesn't actually seem that Caesar was planning to invade Gaul when he took up the governorship of um, of Cisalpine uh, Gaul. Um, it looks as though he was going to invade Illyricum, which which means he would have uh, turned eastwards and invaded, uh, for instance, Croatia and uh, the countries around there. That looks to have been the first plan. But then uh, a migrating group called the Helvetii, uh, from where modern Switzerland is, uh, they uh, they came onto the scene. Uh, they actually asked for permission to march peacefully for the, through the Roman province because they had um, there were pressures in their own homeland, probably from uh, Germans, and they were in search of new farmlands and a new place uh, to settle down. And, and they asked him. They sent ambassadors. They in, in what I think is quite an extraordinary thing, they asked the permission to pass through the Roman province uh, peacefully. Caesar put them off and said he would give them a, an answer sometime in the future, in, in a few days' time, and he used the time to bring his legions up and eventually uh, he attacked them. That was okay from a Roman point of view. I don't think that Romans in Italy are reading the Gallic War or, or listening to the Gallic War being read out. I don't think later they they would have been distressed by this at all because they were both frightened and uh, furious at Gauls for the previous injustices and so on. Um, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, glory and the winning of glory is is extremely important for understanding why Caesar goes into uh, Gaul. And again and again, it's not construction, it's, it's destruction. Mm-hmm. It, it's very difficult to give figures for the number of people who were killed, but... Uh, Plutarch mentions, uh, you know, a million killed, a million enslaved, and and uh, so on. And a million is probably just a, a kind of symbol for fabulous number. Um, it looks as though Caesar killed unbelievably huge numbers of Gauls. Mm-hmm. In fact, we know that Gaul didn't really recover economically, uh, at least, until the early empire. So it's two, two and a half, three generations later than Caesar's age. It looks as though he crushed them so completely that they couldn't even they couldn't even set a tax level after his uh, death in Gaul. They couldn't set it anywhere near what they set for other provinces because it just wasn't the resources. He seems to have destroyed uh, so much of their country and, and so many people that he left it in this uh, dreadfully uh, weakened state for a number of generations until it recovered uh, with, with the natural advantages of the country and people in, in the uh, early imperial period. Um, so when I when I think of the Gallic War, I am again and again and again uh, completely horrified, uh, and that's probably worth emphasising as well. It, it has been the case that the Gallic War has been read and people have been inspired, military figures have been inspired, and they've tried to ask about his generalship, what was so good about him, how, why did his men follow him and win against the odds again and again as they, they do when they're heavily outnumbered or when... They're attacked, they're ambushed without uh, preparation, and, and so on. And that, that's one that you can you can be inspired if you uh, appreciate winning against the odds. But the the horror of the the death and mayhem that he brought, uh, and not just to men, but to men, women, and children, huge numbers who were enslaved, and 
sent back uh, into the Mediterranean world. Uh, and imagine the horrors of being uh, trussed up, uh, carted off, uh, mm-hmm. and treated in ways that you couldn't predict. Uh, the, the amount of slaves, Caesar made a huge amount of money out of Gaul, and uh, people, I think, have in the past thought that a lot of this money comes from temples and, and gold, from offerings and uh, from from great uh, noble houses and so on. But a lot of it came because he sold so, so many slaves that he made uh, huge amounts of money. The, the Gallic War is a terrible episode in human history, if you ask me. And, uh, well, it horrifies me. But there are things to make you ask about Caesar's charisma and about his, his command abilities and so on, and they seem to have been exceptional. But and as a human episode, it just it leaves me cold again and again and again, I have to say. And to to put that in a, in a context in Rome at the time, how would you compare... Caesar's generalship um, and the like the campaigns in Gaul with with other generals. How would you? Um, what similarities or differences would you see between, let's say, a Caesar and a Pompey or anyone else that would um, establish himself as a as a great general? Well, um, well, well, Caesar himself writes about this in his Civil War uh, when he has to actually fight Pompey. Um, one of the one of the points he makes again and again is that Pompey is hesitant. And whereas he gets the impression of being particularly decisive, and, and that is, that's a quality that comes across in Gaul as well, uh, when he wasn't necessarily in conflict with Pompey, as though uh, quickness and decisiveness, uh, speed and attack, these are fundamental principles with, with Caesar. You get into trouble, what do you do? You attack. Uh, and you you think very quickly on your feet, um, and you have an uncanny ability to um, to devise battle tactics, which are, are the best that could be devised at the time. He was just superb at deploying his units around the field in a way that would achieve the best result. Um, he held reserves back, and then again and again you see him uh, unleash them just at that point in the battle where they can make the difference. Uh, it's an uncanny thing. It's it's a, a great feature of his uh, command ability, I think, that he could do that. Because if you imagine these ancient world battles, so often so huge, uh, you know, extending over great expanses of territory, it was really difficult to to know what was going on. And uh, not so much in Gaul, but in other places, there's you know massive amounts of dust and mayhem and noise and hubbub and people screaming and shouting. Uh, you, you didn't necessarily know uh, how things were going in different parts of the field, but Caesar always kept his cool, and he seems to have had that uh, amazing ability to uh, unleash forces at uh, the right moment uh, to make the, the difference with the battles. If, if I just say, um, as a leader of men, uh, it does seem as though Caesar was extraordinary. It, it does seem as though his men had a special uh, loyalty or affection for him, uh, which was beyond the norm. That's partly because he had uh, a string of victories that looked impossible, and he had a, he, he did things that just seemed uh, beyond the pale. He went to Britain, for instance. He went beyond the ocean, beyond the Roman world, beyond the uh, ancient world, it was thought, into Britain of all places, and 
was able to write back and uh, tell people he'd, he'd, uh, you know, what he'd done in, in Britain. Uh, although the British invasions were not particularly successful, the, the actual thought of going there, it's, it's, I don't know what it'd be like. It's like visiting this uh, other world going and to the surviving. In, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something extraordinary like that. Uh, and he did these things. Maybe if I just say that after the first year's campaigning in Gaul, I think what Caesar did uh, is, is very telling for what his aims were, but for also what he accomplished with his men. He, uh, he's invaded Gaul from Italy, and France is quite a big country, as, as you know, extending from the, the uh, Italian Alps all the way to the Atlantic. And uh, Caesar fights in Gaul, defeats the Helvetii, and then fights some German invaders of Gaul and wins the support of Gallic tribes by uh, defeating these Germans, driving them away. And then he's at the end of that first campaigning season. What does he do? You might think that the natural, uh, the natural answer would be to go back to Italy. After all, he's you know he's from the Roman province uh, in the south there. He's the governor of the provinces. Why why not go back? Well, he actually took his men north uh, towards where Belgium is now, uh, and this is quite extraordinary. So it means that the Roman legions march. Uh, two-thirds or seven-eighths of the way into, into Gaul uh, and they camp reasonably adjacent to the tribe of the Belgae, the, the um, tribe who live in what is uh, Belgium today or, or uh, uh, near what is Belgium today. He, so he marches past all these Gallic tribes who were not conquered, whose loyalty to him or his friendship to him, whose toleration of him is uh, shaky, and he has his men camp uh, in preparation for next camping season, uh, in campaigning season, pardon me, all the way north. Now, why would you do that? Uh, it looks as though because his aims, his aims of conquest were uh, were developing. But to do something like that, he uh, he put his forces at the very very greatest risk. If they they were actually attacked by the Belgae, they were uh, ambushed. Uh, and they were attacked, but they fought the bell guy off. If they'd been wiped out, we wouldn't think of Julius Caesar as anything like a great commander. Not at all. We would think of him as being foolhardy and uh, reckless and really very, very stupid to have done something like this. Well, I can tell you Caesar did things like this again and again and again and again. The principle of attack, the principle of uh, frightening the opposition, the principle of getting into their face, of acting quickly, of uh, using speed and uh, and massive damage. Uh, it, it's a sort of early version of shock and war, I guess. To, to do those, shock and awe, I guess, pardon me, um, to do those sorts of things. That's what he was about. And uh, and they won. They won once and twice. And, and once you build up this succession of victories, uh, it becomes part of the soldier's thinking to think that you know, this general can do the impossible. He, he must be divinely inspired. He must be backed by uh, fortune. He must be completely um, unlike anything we've experienced before. And a great charisma began to build up around him. Nothing succeeds like success, they say. And uh, uh, Caesar's career, I think, uh, is, is a very clear indication of that. I would just emphasize again that he gets his men 
into one dreadful position after another, after another, after another, that he, he exhorts them to attack. He, he leads them. If, if they begin to run away, as on a couple of occasions even his uh, great legions did, he himself will grab the legionary standard and run towards the, the enemy. Uh, and when he does that, he's, he's the general of the army carrying the standard, running towards the enemy. Any soldiers of his who are running away, they, they can't let the general or the standard go. So they have to turn around and, uh, and uh, support him. Uh, his, his leadership was extraordinary. If he'd been defeated, however, again, I would make, just make this point about thinking of Caesar's career, not from hindsight, but from uh, each individual event building forward. If he'd been defeated on any of these occasions, we would think he was a poor general, that he was reckless, that he got his men into uh, a stupid position, and that he deserved everything he got. Um, sometimes daring and boldness pays off, and when it does, it can be spectacularly received. And I, I do think this is part of Caesar's uh, um, glory as a general, anyway, part of his subsequent reputation. It's, it's not what I would recommend. Uh, he was extraordinarily lucky, uh, but it worked for him, so... You know, you have to you have to make your own choices, I guess, about whether you'll you'll take the risks. Well, the analogy that came to mind when you were talking about that was that it, if he was a poker player, it was like he every major decision he made was like all in. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So right and right from the beginning, when you when you mentioned what he'd reportedly said to his mother about uh, being the Pontifex Maximus, he would either come home with the position or not at all. And it seems like that. That repeats through his career. It's he goes all in, and it's either he could lose everything or, or gain it all. And it's it, then that comes back to his, his um, like a, well, his views on on his own fortune or luck, and the, even the phrase he used a gambling phrase when he crossed the Rubicon, to okay. the die is cast or let the die be cast. So I just think that's yeah. interesting. But I wanted I, to bring. I couldn't. Make that. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say I couldn't agree more with uh, what you're saying there about the gambling analogies. Mm -hmm. they're, they're very, um, very appropriate ones. Well, I wanted to come back a bit to Roman religion. You talked about the position of Pontifex Maximus and and Caesar's role in Roman society as a, a religious figure, almost, and well, not almost, just as a religious figure. And later in his life, after the Civil War. The senators and the Senate um, just heaped all kinds of honors on him. And then after his death, he was actually deified. Some people might not know that. I wonder if you could talk a bit about Caesar's deification and what that might actually have meant to his contemporaries, uh, people in the Senate or just the people in the in the empire. Right. Um, this, again, it's a, it's a controversial issue, but I think that uh, recent scholarship, the last couple of generations, has helped us forward um, in leaps and bounds. And, and one thing I would say is that if you think of uh, the last couple of years of Caesar's life, when he received um, an extraordinary uh, list of honours, uh, amazing things, um, uh, being called the father of the country, uh, it, it actually built. I mean, he got statues of all kinds. He uh, he got. Um, uh, a month named after him, and uh, and honours that are, are really quite extraordinary. He was incorporated into other state rituals for other gods. His name was uh, read out, became part of hymns, and and so on and, and so forth. Extraordinary honours. 
uh, and they went as far, as you mentioned, uh, as actually deifying him. Now, there, there are probably two distinctions to make in, in relation to that. One is that it looks as though from Cicero that the Senate actually passed a, uh, a decree that Caesar would be made a god during his lifetime and he was going to be called uh, Divus Julius, so the, the, the deified Julius or the god uh, Julius, that was going to be his name. That was what would be in the, in the hymns and in the rituals when they were sacrificing to him and so on. So they gave him a name and they actually gave him a priest. And the priest was going to be a flamen. Uh, so it wouldn't be a pontifex, for instance, or any of the other uh, college of priests. It would be a flamen priest. And um, the flamen was a... Um, it was a top kind of... Uh, it was the top-ranking priest at Rome. I want to say it's a bit like a cardinal or something like that, but... Um, maybe that's not a very good analogy, but at any rate, it had a particular aura about it. If you had a flamen, you were one of the the uh, top gods of the Roman state. <laughs> Pardon me. But, uh, uh, this seems to have been decreed before Caesar's death, and we know that the priest, the flamen, was going to be Mark Antony. So uh, all these things were decided. He was going to be a god of the state, incorporated in rituals, sacrificed to himself before his death. Now, he was assassinated, and, and probably not uh, directly because he was going to be deified. I could maybe speak a bit more about that later, but um, he was assassinated, and the, um, the planning hadn't gone through. So it hadn't actually happened. After his death, when, um, when his heir, Augustus, came to Rome and, uh, and sought Caesar's honours and, uh, and uh, sought power for himself, well, uh, it was in Augustus' interest to uh, have his, his father deified. Um, and, uh, and in 42 BC, Caesar was consecrated and made a, a god of the Roman state. So there were, there were temples and altars and sacrifices and, and uh, rituals being conducted to him. And the, the question that's always asked is, how should we assess this idea of um, deifying a human being uh, in ancient Rome? And, and I can tell you that um, traditional scholarship used to say, well, this proves that the Romans didn't really believe in their religion, that they were just exploiting it for political purposes. They didn't really believe that Caesar was a god. Uh, they, just, they just wanted to please him. It was done in a sycophantic way, um, and it was done as, as um, a matter of politics. You just, you just do it because uh, Caesar's now in control and, well, uh, we've lost our freedom and so, you know, we, we just treat him as though uh, he's a god. And he's a megalomaniac. The, the, the thinking that goes behind this is really quite extraordinary. Caesar becomes a megalomaniac. He becomes somebody uh, who loves this sort of attention and, uh, you know, who um, accepts deification because his mindset is fundamentally a sick one in relation to religion. Well, more recent scholars have said, okay, uh, what about if we think about the power that's occurring here, uh, the, the power relationships that are occurring here? So people thinking more sociologically and anthropologically and thinking about rituals and symbols and people's behaviours as against uh, necessarily their thoughts or their psychology or the things that are more difficult for us to recover. What exactly were they doing? 
and again, it looks as though they were they were planning uh, temples and uh, sacrifices and priesthoods and and so on to Julius Caesar. And what is it the matter of his power? Because at the end of his life, he had an autocratic power over the state that was really unprecedented. Even Sulla, who eventually stepped down from his position as dictator, even Sulla didn't have as much power and his dictatorship wasn't going to be perpetual as Caesar's was. Even Sulla didn't have as much power as Julius Caesar. So what if these honours are really a way of trying to deal with uh, Caesar's power, this overwhelming power, in the way that you try to deal with the overwhelming power of the gods? What if it's about negotiating with the monarch? What if it's about setting up a relationship between you and the monarch that is uh, a bit like a relationship between a god and a man um, in terms of the great social distance between you know, a god and a man? What, what if it is to do with power? What if they weren't really disturbed about deification in the way that um, we might more easily be in the modern world? Uh, what if they were negotiating something with him? What if he wasn't then the sort of sick figure who was a megalomaniac and um, accepted this, these sorts of honours because he was so dreadfully proud and so on? Uh, again, I would say that the whole question of his deification um, has become much richer, much more interesting, uh, much more vibrant as a result of thinking uh, in the way that anthropologists and psycho uh, psychologists and uh, um, sociologists in particular do, uh, as a result of that sort of scholarship than uh, the way we had thought about it in the past, where we uh, we thought of religion as the opiate of the masses and as something for the nobles to exploit. Um, as to Julius Caesar himself and what he thought, well, we, we can't always know what people thought. We can know what they did um, more easily at any rate. Even there, we, we must be um, source critical. But... Caesar accepted these honours, and uh, so he must have seen something positive for himself in them. Uh, and what I said was not necessarily that it uh, satisfied his ego in a in a kind of uh, uh, dark and and sick fundamentally way, but that it uh, suited him to have his power over the state demonstrated in this way. Uh, he had got to the point at the end of his life where he'd become the dictator of Rome. And where he could see, I think, looking around, that uh, everything depended on him. If he was to stand down, as Sulla had done, what would happen? He could have asked himself. And in fact, he, he didn't need to ask himself because there were others who were telling him what would happen. Uh, if, you, if you step down, there will be civil war. These other nobles will fight one another again. They've seen the example of Sulla and Marius and you and Pompey. There will be civil war again if you step down you really can't afford to step down. And when that, when you get that sense that, uh, that Caesar was getting advice that he really couldn't afford to step down because he was the one figure who stood between uh, a kind of peace in the state, established through warfare, but a peace in the state, and renewed civil war. Once he got the idea that he was the pivotal figure renewed civil war, then he decides to hang on as dictator. And, uh, well to his detriment in the end, of course, because he was assassinated, as, uh, as everyone knows, on, on the Ides of March of 44 BC. Well, maybe we can get into the assassination a bit, because, well, one, one direction I wanted to go in 
maybe we can get into this after talking about the assassination, is the the perception of of Caesar among uh, the so-called optimates or other members of the Senate that were either pro or anti-Caesar, and then the people in general. But he was assassinated, and he was assassinated by a, a small conspiracy of senators. Could you get into their motivations for the assassination? Why did it happen? Sure. Um, yes, it's uh, great to bring up uh, the optimates or senators who, who take an optimate line. Um, because I think that those men, uh, are, they're a kind of reactionary group. They're a group who want the government at Rome uh, to emphasize senatorial leadership, emphasize leadership by the best men from the best families, the families that had previously supplied Rome's great generals and had done great deeds on behalf of the state, the, the men who, in their view, had built up uh, political acumen and political experience and who were socially uh, superior and who had all these advantages which meant that they should be listened to. Uh, that's the sort of thing that these men emphasize. And there are other politicians and sometimes they're the same politicians. Sometimes they can uh, they can move back and forth between a, a, an optimate uh, line and a more popular line, as, as I'll say. There were others who said, look, Rome... Uh, exists on the principle of popular sovereignty. The Roman people make laws. We must let the Roman people uh, make their laws. We must give them the best advice we, we possibly can. We must accept that at times they will differ from us, and uh, and and so on. So, to emphasise that the Roman people make laws, the Senate passes decrees. The decrees are very powerful because this is a hierarchical society, but the Decrees are, are backed by the moral authority of the Senate rather than by the legal uh, mechanisms of the state. Laws are what the people decide on, listening to the advice of the Senate. Um, I hope I'm saying this well. They, they were very much respectful of the advice of the Senate. It's a very hierarchical society, and uh, the Senate had in the past provided... Uh, good leadership, especially in the days of uh, the Hamidalic invasion and uh, Rome's expansion throughout the Mediterranean. Uh, it was much more difficult in the first century BC with civil war, meaning that people were, were choosing sides or becoming disillusioned with older uh, structures and ideas. Um, so what you have is somebody like Caesar, who is very charismatic, and he's often characterized as being a popular politician, so one who appealed to the people, one who emphasized their popular sovereignty, one who um, gave them the sense that they uh, should assert themselves um, in, and, and not just be bossed around by their betters. Uh, th there is something to that. You can see him doing that on occasion. But I also think that he was very good at making connections across Roman society with peoples of all grades, one of the things I like about Colin McCulloch's book series, the First Man in, in Rome series, if, if uh, anyone knows it, uh, the books are very large, but uh, I, I like them for this reason, that they, they give a good sense of how Caesar made links with people from uh, very low levels of Roman society to mid-levels to upper middle levels and to the very highest levels. You do get a sense of somebody who has a web of relationships that uh, can be brought together 
in his favour when he needs uh, some uh, some support. I just say a couple of a couple of things on the optimates and the outbreak of the civil war, if I if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, Caesar, when when the Gauls had been defeated, uh, so if we think of a year like 50 BC, when the Gauls had been defeated, Caesar wanted to come back to Rome and celebrate a magnificent triumph uh, and become consul again in 48 BC. And his achievements had been so undeniably uh, extraordinary in military terms that he expected everybody in the state simply to acknowledge this. But he'd become a figure of such overwhelming uh, glory and uh, a figure of such charisma for so many people that kind of naturally it has worried um, the arch-conservatives. So they opposed him. Now, what do you do? They brought Pompey in on their side or tried to appeal to Pompey to help them. And, of course, Pompey, uh, he doesn't mind seeing Caesar a little bit uh, disadvantaged. Doesn't doesn't mean he necessarily wants to uh, uh, fight him, but he doesn't mind seeing him under pressure. And and you have uh, political conflict. Well, that's endemic at Rome. That should, that's always there. That always happens. The big difference here is that the arch-conservatives refused to compromise even when the majority of their fellow senators made it clear that they felt they really should. The, the optimates, uh, they just would not back down. They had decided that Caesar was too dangerous, that potentially he was uh, too threatening to them and their power and the things that they held dear. So in a, in a quite manic way, again and again and again, they refused, they refused, they refused to um, give him the things he was asking for, the great triumph, the uh, second consulship, the uh, heroic return to Rome and so on, uh, because they were worried about his power. They, they wanted to damage him and because some of them had personal animus against him. Uh, whatever we say about Julius Caesar and, and his great charisma and the way that he got uh, people to follow him extraordinarily, uh, a man like that is also very polarizing. So whereas some loved him, some absolutely hated him, and I can't help but smile when I say this because I'm always thinking of the great uh, conflict between Cicero and Cato the Elder, and uh, Cato the Younger, I beg your pardon, mm-hmm. sorry about that, Cato the Younger. And uh, when I, I simply can't think of a, a couple of public figures who uh, hated themselves, hated each other as much as uh, these two guys did. And Cato was very prominent among the arch conservatives. He simply would not compromise in spite of the fact that many Romans were saying, look, you really should. It's not such a bad thing to let him come back and, and triumph and hold a second consulship. Look, look at what he's done in Gaul. He's done, he's done enough. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't tweak the nose of the, of the bull here. Uh, it, would it really damage you so much to allow these things to happen? They, they just they were so uh, concerned for their position and they had this personal uh, anger against him uh, from, from personal conflicts that, uh, yeah, they wouldn't back down. Now, to understand their mindset, you you have to think that they were seeing a process occurring which was not just threatening to them personally, but to everything they held, to their whole um, idea for the way that Rome should be governed and organized. They came from great families, which had always supplied consuls in the past, 
which had always been looked upon as the uh, leaders of the Roman state, uh, to then that group of families, the, the noble families, uh, they were the ones who should be in control. You shouldn't have a situation where an individual dominates all those families. In fact, uh, they had agreements in the past that they would share consulships, that they would share power, that power was something to be um, shared by the group rather than dominated by an individual. And through various circumstances, through all the developments of the first century BC, they could see Sulla, they could see Marius, they could see Pompey, they could see Caesar. They, they were foretelling the coming of, of emperors. They were seeing that there were people who were gaining enough military power and enough popular support to eventually make themselves monarchs. So they decide to fight back. They lose against Caesar. As, as you know, he wins the civil war. But then at the end of his lifetime, he has to work out how to deal with these noble families. And what he did was to, to show them mercy, uh, to show them mercifulness, if, if you like. It's this famous policy of clementia or clemency um, that, that features in the, in the book there. Uh, and the extraordinary thing about that is that unlike Sulla, who in a wholesale dreadful manner butchered his enemies, uh, killed men from great families, took their property, uh, divided it up among his soldiers, gained support in, in Italy. Um, rather than kill his enemies, Caesar decided to show them mercy. Now, uh, you, you might think this is good. And in fact, uh, Cicero talks about how personally affable he was in the, in the latter years of his life, how he was, you know, he, he spoke very well, that he was personally very charming. Uh, so he wasn't the intimidating cruel, um, terrifying figure that we get the sense that Sulla was. And, and I think a big part of the reason is because he was trying very hard not to be like Sulla. But, but something extraordinary happened. Uh, if you show mercifulness to your peers, especially when they're so uh, driven by competition and driven by the, the grandeur of their names and the excellence of their their families and their own ideas for how they should share power in the state. If you show mercy to your um, defeated enemies among these noble families, it's, it's like the mercy that a Roman general shows to defeated enemies. Um, or it's like, even worse, it's like the uh, behaviour of an autocrat towards their subjects. So they're plainly not peers anymore. They're not, they're not on the same level. Even if it's even if it's better to be spared your life after the civil war than to be murdered and, and uh, to have your family destroyed and your property taken, as Sulla had done, even if it's better to receive mercy from that point of view, you are demeaned. You're obviously lesser than the person who is extending the mercy to you. Uh, and in fact, you're so much less that you're like a subject uh, to a king. And, and this realisation towards the end of his life and the realisation that Caesar wasn't going to step down from his dictatorship, uh, from, his, from his autocratic power at Rome. Well, that's what led to the, the conspiracy. Um, and, and it's, again, quite an amazing thing, I think. Caesar was getting advice that he really shouldn't step down because if you step down, you're the only one stopping renewed civil war. These men don't like one another. They'll compete. And they've seen what Sulla and Marius have done and what you and Pompey have done. They know if they get legionary support, they could march on the state and make themselves rulers. 
if you step down, there'll be renewed civil war. Uh, so he stays. But in staying, he makes it clear that he has autocratic power over them and he engenders the uh, conspiracy because they, they can't stand uh, the power of a king at Rome. So uh, Sir Ronald Syme, a very great Roman historian, is somebody who thinks that Caesar was caught. Um, he, he thinks that Caesar, uh, at the end of his life at any rate, wasn't really intending necessarily to become Rome's ruler forever, but when he saw the situation, when he assessed what he was being told, and when he looked around himself, um, Ronald Sun's famous statement is that Caesar had wrecked the playground uh, so that he, he needed to stay where he was, but in staying where he was, well, the nobles couldn't stand that, and uh, a conspiracy was formed against him to try to uh, bring back the kind of state where they could all uh, compete with one another for honours, for offers, for commands in the provinces and all the lucrative benefits of commands in the provinces as they had done before Caesar was in, in charge. You know, uh, sprinkled um, throughout your book here and there, and, and you just kind of mentioned it, um, was Caesar's personality and, and how well he was received by people um, on a personal basis, um, which in some ways stands in stark contrast to uh, the brutality he was capable of uh, during his campaigns. Um, on the subject of the assassination um, in your book, you mentioned that uh, Shakespeare's famous line, et tu brute, you too brutus, is inaccurately reproduced. And that Suetonius uh, is the ultimate source for uh, this last line of his life, in which he says, uh, like this, he was stabbed with 23 blows without uttering a word, except for a groan at the first stroke. Though some have recorded that when Marcus Brutus came at him, he said in Greek, you too, my child. And um, I have to say, uh, when I read that, uh, it, it it was a far more poignant uh, thing uh, to hear, if it's true, uh, than a two Brutus, where uh, maybe friendship was involved. And in this case, it was uh, a paternalistic feeling that uh, that uh, was betrayed um, by Brutus. And um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts regarding that. Look, that's a really sharp point to make as well. Everybody thinks about uh, the last line being Etu Brute, uh, you too, Brutus. And uh, if it was in Greek, Kaisu uh, Technon, and you also, Technon is a, an interesting word. It, it's, uh, it can mean boy and child. And if it, boy or child, whatever it means, how do we take it? Uh, if it's you also, Brutus, you, you can get the sense that uh, Caesar's shocked that Brutus should also participate, uh, and that is very often a way that those lines, those words have been taken. But if he says, Kaisu Technon, and you, child, and you, boy, uh, how do we interpret that? Some have thought that, again, he's equally uh, shocked that someone he looked on as a... Um, as in an analogous position to his son, um, it could kill him. So some have thought it's uh, it's horror that somebody he looked upon uh, so affectionately 
uh, should kill him. But then others have said, well, hang on, uh, Kai Su Technon, if it means, and you, boy, mm-hmm. as though he's actually putting him down, okay. you know, and you too, do you really think you can surpass me? Do you really think you can take my place? Yeah. You also, you too, boy? So the, the, this question will go on, the interpretation will go on, the, the debates will go on. But uh, uh, if we do away with Etu Brute um, and, and not think Shakespearean for a little while and think about uh, what the sources say, then... Well, again, it's richer. Uh, I don't think the, the possibilities are resolved, but um, uh, we, we certainly get a different uh, feel for what might have been said and, and the, the tone in which it might have been said, the meaning that might have been attached to it. Yeah, that, that hadn't occurred to me, so I appreciate that. Um, another um, thing that uh, the life of Caesar kind of brings up um, is the question of uh, who uh, in contemporary history um, you might feel uh, comes closest to resembling uh, some of the characteristics of Caesar. Um, and, uh, of course, we're living in different times. Maybe maybe it's arguable that uh, we're not living in, in uh, so different a time. Um, but I was just wondering if you uh, have ever looked around and, and thought, well, you know, uh, this uh, this leader sort of reminds me a little bit of Caesar, or or this is uh, something I think Caesar would have done at his time, or or something to that effect. So, well, just yeah, gosh, uh, I I haven't seen a Caesar in my lifetime, and I hope I don't. Uh, I'm a Roman historian, and uh, I do get, you know, I do get passionately inspired by my work, but uh, I'd hope not to see it. But I don't love the Romans. That's the thing. Uh, my students often ask me, "Do you love Julius Caesar?" You know, uh, uh, I I appreciate him. I am fascinated by his career, but to love uh, Julius Caesar, well, what I see in the career of Julius Caesar is someone who. Uh, for personal reasons and for personal uh, qualities, and then for institutional reasons, for processes of the time, produced massive mayhem and destruction. And the final result of the final results of Caesar's life were assassination, and then renewed civil war. He, he didn't bring peace to his society, or a more stable, or a fairer, more reasonable, more just society. He brought a society that was condemned to further a uh, series of civil wars of a particularly horrific kind. In, in fact, the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC, uh, a couple of years after Caesar's death, was the, the biggest by far civil war battle uh, ever fought in Roman history. Uh, so that he, he didn't have results for the state that I would like a, a statesman to have. Um, as far as uh, seeing a Caesar in, in the world today, or seeing a Caesar in my lifetime, or, or thinking about uh, Caesar relating to public figures, um, I actually have seen it, and I have thought about it uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, I think if you if you go to uh, Google now, and if you were to Google uh, Julius Caesar, my guess is that you would come up with uh, 
some images of, say, Mussolini. Uh, but you'd also come up with images of more recent U.S. presidents. I'll just bet that that's the case. If you were to Google Julius Caesar, you would see um, President Bush, the younger President Bush, um, cartoons of him as Julius Caesar. And I think even you'd find President Obama um, portrayed as Julius Caesar, wearing Roman robes and with a laurel wreath and, and so on. Um, and, and it's the case that Caesar is still a model for world leaders, and there is concern that someone... Well, there are two things to say here. One is that there is sometimes very great concern that a world leader could behave like Caesar because of the aggression and the uh, expansionism and the um, the massive intensity and the, the great destruction of Caesar. So there's that concern. And if a world leader looks as though they are overstepping their boundaries or are um, advocating expansion or advocating attacking somebody, then, then Caesar can come into play. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are, there are, uh, Caesar can be used in another way as a, a figure of power, as a figure of charisma, as a figure of uh, sort of preeminence and, and uh, sustained supremacy. Uh, so it's not really advocating a, a particular position on something and not really advocating a particular policy, but it's just evoking a certain image of power and I think that still happens today a very great deal. It would be interesting if, if we all did Google Julius Caesar and just see how many uh, world leaders have still dressed as Caesar and, and talked about as uh, as Julius Caesar. Maybe if I just I've got a um, I've got a story in my mind uh, thinking about Caesar's charisma. Uh, and, and this analogy I'm about to make. Or about the draw. I think you might think it's a bit unusual. I think it's a bit unusual, but there's something that's really difficult for us, given our sources, given the distance between uh, words on the page and our reading, and the, the centuries uh, and our distance from the context and the processes and so on. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult for us to uh, assess something like charisma. Why it is that people are drawn to another individual. Uh, if you think of sports figures or uh, or cultural figures or rock stars or whatever, you, you know that people's um, reactions to other human beings for reasons that even they would admit are non-rational or irrational, it, it's extremely difficult to assess why that is. Why, why do you like the look of somebody? What have you built up in your mind about somebody? Why that particular individual? Um, when I when I think of trying to assess Caesar's uh, impact on people, um, there was something that happened in my life that I was um, that never lost me at the time. Anyway, uh, I was a student in um, England. Uh, gosh, it was quite some time ago. Anyway, and uh, President Mandela was going to visit, and I remember that I uh, went off for lunch and. Uh, well, I tried to see if I could see Mandela, and in fact I couldn't. There was a, a crowd of people, and I just saw his car go past, and I can't even say that I, I saw, um, I could see through the windows that, that he was there. I didn't actually see him, but I saw his car, and I walked a very long way uh, to go and see him, just because I, uh, I felt he was someone to admire. Um, and, and that's not something I'm conscious of having done for uh, other world leaders, 
Uh, and I did that because, I, as I say, I had some something I couldn't articulate at the time, but I was impressed. I, I did think that he um, was an extraordinary rather than an ordinary leader, and it was worth taking the time to see if I could even catch a glimpse of him. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't actually work out, but I wasn't unhappy that I'd, I'd made the effort. Why did I do that? Well, I think it has something to do with uh, the way we get drawn to particular individual human beings, the way they activate something in us that's just about impossible for an academic to talk about, um, unless through anecdotes like that one. Uh, and I think that Julius Caesar, because of his extraordinary string of victories, his, his personal gifts, he was tall for a Roman, he had piercing dark eyes, he uh, spoke affably, he was evidently very good um, as dinner company, he, he was a great public speaker. Um, Cicero was aware that if, if Caesar had applied himself to public speaking, he would have been the best orator in Rome uh, rather than Cicero. But of course, Caesar had a uh, more traditional career in many ways in, in uh, having all this uh, military uh, responsibility. But this, this sense of charisma about this guy... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't very often see it around the world, but, but when I do see people reacting extraordinarily to somebody else, uh, it does inform the way I think about uh, Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. I hope there's been some kind of answer mm-hmm. then. I, oh, yeah. I don't, thank heavens, I don't see a Julius Caesar uh, necessarily around the world among the major leaders surrounding in my head, partly because the state and the military are... Um, divided in the, in the countries I'm thinking of, they're not, uh, they're not married in the way they were in ancient Rome. So that uh, even if the president, for instance, is the head of the armed forces, uh, I can still see a divide between the civilian legislature and, and the military. Uh, so the countries I can think of, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily see a Julius Caesar um, that I'm particularly worried about. If I if I did. I would be worried. Uh, I guess that's a message I'd, I'd like to put across. Uh, Caesar has been much, much admired, but it's not very hard to see uh, destruction rather than construction in, in the way that you asked the, the, the question earlier on. Well, just as a follow-up to that, I mean, obviously we, we can't separate Caesar from the time he lived in and the fact that if there was any uh, constructive um, motivation on his part, um, you know, it, it it would have had to have existed when he was, you know, after the wars and perhaps towards the end of his life when he was trying to instate re- reforms. And it, as you said earlier, um, you know, he was deified in part because people were really afraid that uh, there would be another civil war and that it, it appeared that he was the one keeping things together. Um I know it's difficult to separate uh, the, the Caesar, the military man, and, and the imperialist. Uh, I'm just wondering if there was another uh, strain of constructiveness or benevolence that could be detected in uh, in his life that uh, that you could point to or or not. Well. Um I think if we're going to answer this question, we, we should look at his reforms uh, in his di- dictatorship. So the last couple of years of his life, 
what sort of reforms did he pass, and how should we interpret them? Well, uh, for people like um, Theodore Mommsen in the 19th century, uh, Julius Caesar drove himself to become the ruler of Rome so that he could reform the state and overturn the power of the corrupt noble families who were uh, simply ruling for themselves and being extremely selfish and violent and so on. Uh, Caesar is meant to have been their opposite. He's meant to have wanted to be a popular leader who would come to power for the benefit of the Roman people and uh, set the state on a, a more even tier, what was more reasonable, more fair and more just. And again and again and again, when I look at Caesar's reforms in the last couple of years of his life, I, I don't see somebody who was overturning uh, tradition in a dramatically different way. He certainly did pass reforms, but my interpretation of those reforms is that they are far more traditional in colour than revolutionary. Um, the old view of him needing to become king so that he could sweep away the, the dreadfully corrupt Roman state of uh, previous generations, I, I, I don't see that. I, I see a man who... Uh, I see a man who had more respect for uh, tradition and the uh, traditions of Roman government and power and more respect from, for his social uh, peers than, than has perhaps been um, thought. And, and what I mean is, is this. In politics, for instance, uh, the Senate, Caesar, he did, uh, he did reform the Senate. So the Senate had been 300 men, very famously, throughout most of the history of the Roman Republic. And then Sulla added 300 more members, so that it became a body of 600. Um, Caesar added 300 more, so that it became a body of 900. And once it becomes a body of 900, it's, it's a more unwieldy institution, uh, less easy to conduct debate, uh, less easy to organize um, and to gain consensus. But the, the new members were coming from people who had supported Caesar in Italy um, and in, uh, in, in places that were uh, under his control. So you might think that the new Senate is um, an institution that supports Caesar in his new uh, role as a dictator of Rome. Well, one thing I would say maybe to counter that is to say that the Senate wasn't done away with. Neither were the magistrates. The traditional magistrates stayed in place, the consuls, the praetors, the ediles, the quaestors, and, and so on. Uh, they, they were still there. The government still looked as though the government of previous years, there were some uh, differences, but what do you emphasize? Do you emphasize the change, or do you emphasize the continuity? Mm-hmm. So the, the politics is one thing. Um, then, then there's what happened in Italy. Uh, Caesar did found colonies. He founded colonies to give um, living area to those soldiers who had fought for him and to others who had supported him in the civil war. Now, does that mean that Italy becomes uh, Caesarized, or is it something that had been happening previously? Uh, there had been colonization in Italy uh, from the beginnings of Roman imperialism, and it was certainly the case that people like Marius and Sulla sponsored colonies for their soldiers as well. So again, do we emphasize the change or do we emphasize the continuity? Socially, he passed some laws against uh, extravagance. 
um, and he passed some laws against uh, perceived immorality. Uh, why, why do that? Well, uh, is it to change the state? Is it to say the state had been immoral, uh, or is it to, um, to do things that had been done uh, as had been done previously? Is it change or is it continuity? I can tell you that the Romans periodically did pass uh, moral legislation, uh, laws against adultery, for instance, laws against uh, sexual license, laws against particular kinds of displays that were thought of as being um, unseemly. Why did they do that? I, I, to just emphasize Caesar was by no means the only one who did that. It had been done previously and would be done later as well. Why do they do that? I think it's an interesting feature of the ancient world in general that when they think of historical change, they explain it as uh, primarily being the responsibility of individual human beings. Human beings create change, and, and very often the human beings are the great men of the society. They're responsible for the change. Now, Roman had civil war. Why, why did it have civil war? Well, if you focus on individual human beings all the time, you'll be saying that they had civil war, which is a bad thing, because human beings had become bad. They, they weren't worshipping the gods properly. They weren't behaving properly in their homes. They were adulterous. They were lecherous. They were um, displaying themselves badly. Uh, so uh, you have to act against that. It's expected by the society. It's, it's the norm. It's one of the um, default positions that you, you take or one of the knee-jerk actions that you take. So again, uh, this is a reform that, that Caesar uh, passed, but does it mean that he was dissatisfied and wants to create a new state? Uh, or is it a matter of continuity? Is it the kind of thing that the society would expect? And, and I think you can do this with Caesar's reforms again and again and again. He extended citizenship, for instance, and uh, some scholars have said, well, that, you know, that shows his dissatisfaction with the, uh, the shape of the previous state. Um, I would say that, again, you don't have to look very far to see Roman generals using their prerogatives to extend citizenship to people who have helped them. It isn't necessarily about building uh, a brand new state. Um, in fact, uh, it's the sort of thing that had been done by the so-called traditional state again and again and again. So when, when I look at what Caesar has uh was doing as a, a reformist at the end of his life, that the laws that he passed at any rate, they looked to me to be far more traditional and revolutionary. The, the old idea of him wanting uh, a, a new state, massive dissatisfaction with the, uh, you know, the previous decadence of the, the state dominated by the nobles, um, the, the sort of dissatisfaction that would make him want to be Rome's king from an early age so that he could get rid of all these uh, corrupt people and corrupt practices and so on. I, I don't see that his reforms actually um, support that notion. It's again another interpretation from, uh, from hindsight. For me, there's at least as much continuity as there is change, uh, maybe even a little more so, and, and more than that. I, I really think this is what I should emphasize about uh, what I think that means. Uh, it doesn't look to me as though it's a, a long-digested and long-thought-out series of manoeuvres to make the state more uh, stable, more secure, more fair, more just. In fact, the laws that he passed, uh, again and again and again, 
looked like the kind of thing that you would just expect from Roman leaders, uh, given past practice. The, the idea of Caesar as a statesman, uh, I think we should even, even question that. Uh, if you mean by a statesman, somebody who has a conception of the state that would make it more secure, that would make its people, uh, that would make life for its people more reasonable, more, more fair, more just, more prosperous, I, I don't actually see that happening uh, with what Julius Caesar did. And in fact, I'm not so sure that, he'd be, that he was all that comfortable uh, at Rome and with the power that he had and the responsibilities that he felt he now had at the end of his life. If, if you ask me, if he'd lived just a couple of days longer, what would he have done? Mm-hmm. Well, we know what he would have done. He was about to embark on a big campaign against the Parthians uh, in the east of the empire. He was going to go and campaign. After all the fighting that he had done, after the endless series of immense, immensely difficult campaigns, he was going to go and fight the Parthians who had, uh, who had invaded Roman territory, who had uh, threatened Rome's eastern boundaries for um, some time, eastern borders for some time. It, it looks as though he was much more comfortable at this stage in his life being away from Rome and, and fighting than he was uh, passing reforms that would really cause um, a major difference in people's lives in a positive way. I'm, uh, I, I don't mean to demean the very great gifts of Julius Caesar. I'm very careful about this, but I'm even beginning to question the whole idea that he was a great uh, statesman. If you take this viewpoint, that you should try and look at his career piecemeal uh, from the bottom up instead of from the top down, from the dictatorship down, but from from the bottom up, from his early years through to more mature years, and then try and contemplate the situation as it occurred um, at contemporary time. All right, well... It looks like we've run a bit over time, so I think we'll end it there. Uh, Thank you so much, Tom, for talking with us. And I hope that as many of our listeners as possible get a hold of your book. Again, it is Julius Caesar and the Transformation of the Roman Republic. You can can find it on Amazon. You can probably order it from your local bookstore. Uh, I really recommend it. It's a great read. And probably it's, I think, you know, I've read a few Caesar books published in the last decade or so, and I think this is one of the best. So thank you, Tom, for writing the book and for appearing on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest in the questions. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you again next week. So take care.